0: Rash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry.
1: And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are talking about the 1995 album Demanufacture from Fear Factory. At last, in t- in two ways actually, like at last we're talking about Fear Factory because people have definitely wanted us to talk about Fear Factory for a long time, and also it's been quite a while since our last episode, <laughs> so sorry everyone about that. <laughs>
0: Although uh, th- we know that uh, time is a, is a different animal over the course of the past 12 months. Uh, and really so, is. yeah, it uh, I mean, it could be a day or it could be six months. Who's, yeah, who's I mean, to say? But it looks like February was our last episode.
1: Yeah, that's been part of the problem. Uh, but also, uh, it's you know, mainly my fault because I've just been incredibly busy uh, with the day job, as it were, everyone. So sorry about that. But here we are. It's given us lots and lots of time to uh, listen to the album um, and uh, think about what we're going to what we want to say about it. So we will do that soon. Um, uh, Since the last episode, we have uh, just one new patron, uh, Gorm Fredrickson. Welcome, Gorm. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I want to follow up with a couple of things. First of all, I uh, was on – if <laughs> regular listeners will know that I occasionally refer, talk about Genesis uh, as an aside on this show. And I was on a Genesis podcast, which is called Tabletop Genesis, uh, just recently, talking about Tony Banks' second solo album, The Fugitive, which most people hate, but I think is really great. Uh, so it was a perfect kind of mishmash, because that's the sort of thing I used to do on Unjustly Maligned, of course. So it was a perfect kind of crossover Style um, and that was a lot of fun. if you go to tabletopgenesis.com uh you'll see that I think it's the most recent episode at time of recording, so that was a lot of fun um, and then also we have the sad news that L.G. Petrov, lead singer of entombed uh died just a couple of weeks ago as we record, and he was basically the same age as me i mean there was literally, there's literally <sighs> only a couple it. of months' difference in our ages uh, and yeah, he died of cancer very sadly really yeah, just what a shit man what a what a horrible, horrible thing.
0: I know, and it's that time because we're we're pretty much the same age, you and I. And uh, man, DMX this week fifty.
1: Oh yeah, he's fifty.
0: Yeah. Like just passed away. Like it, it is that time where you know you start losing the people that you grew up with, and it's it's brutal.
1: It really is. And Petrov was uh, by all accounts loved throughout the metal world, just like as a guy. Um, yeah You know, even before he died, you know, he sort of, I knew he had this reputation. And then when he did the, the tributes that came out were just full of everybody going like one of the greatest, nicest, funniest guys on the circuit, you know, um, that everybody loved playing with and having a laugh with. And yeah. uh, Which
0: is always interesting too, though, right? Because you see these, uh, people come out and, you know, uh, talk about their memories and offer condolences and all that kind of stuff. People that you might never, ever connect to. That person, but you start to see how widespread their influence was yes. on the community, on different players, on that kind of stuff. And so that's always um, sadly, we don't usually get to see that stuff until someone passes, but it's always kind of fascinating to see, like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have thought that person, I guess it makes sense that they played together or whatever and, and stuff like that. So, um,
2: well, yeah, but festivals. to see their
0: influence, you, you know, especially if you weren't like a, followed a particular band, like, you know, followed their whole career and everything, like to see the influences, like, wow, huh, yeah. I need to go back and check out more of what they did.
1: Festivals as well is a big thing, because especially yeah. here here in Europe, I think more than the US, like summertime festivals are much more of a, you know, pretty much every country has one, and all the bands you know will go and play at them. Uh, and you just can't help running into bands, you know, at that sort of thing. Bands can't help running into each other. Um, right I mean that's how you got that I'm sure people must have seen on social media this resurfaced on social media a few weeks ago with uh, Rob Zombie trolling his fans because he was bigging up baby metal uh (laughs) <laughs>
0: oh yeah, like, I did see that, yeah. And
1: a lot of his hardcore fans were like, baby metal, what a bunch of fake shits, blah blah." blah. And, uh, and he was backstage like at a festival with them with you know, taking a photo like and he was like, "Let me tell you, these girls work fucking hard and they have way more energy than like half of the other metal bands on this bill, so fuck you."
0: <laughs> yeah. I the, one of the things I love about Rob's, uh, Rob Zombie is he doesn't have time for people's bullshit yeah. and uh I, and I love that about him.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it was a f- funny thread that anyway so um in happier news as it were as i say obviously we're back after a while and our last episode you know <laughs> I've forgotten what we did what did we do
0: we did it was warbringer Anthony, of course <laughs> it was warbringer's uh weapons of tomorrow which i God. know made a huge impression on you and you still listen to it regularly <laughs> um <laughs> i'm so sorry man it's,
1: it's been so long i forgot <laughs>
0: It was. I actually was blown away when I went back. I was like, "Huh, February 15th, we put that post up, huh? Okay, so um, great discussion over on our Facebook page, as usual, of the episode. Um, lots of cheers for the homework as soon as people heard it, which is so funny because if there's one thing that gets spoiled in almost every episode of Thrash It Out, it is uh, people commenting about the homework immediately. Yeah, um, that's <laughs> Although people have gotten good about, like, not at least putting the band name in the initial post, but like that's usually the first comment on anything is like, Oh my God, I heard about the homework. It's amazing. Um, let's see. We had some talk about, uh, hollow Knight because of course, with, oh, yeah. uh, Chuck BB in, in part of the discussion and, and his album that he put out, um, people were just talking about it. I, I had started playing that game and I'm, I'm, I'm not into the, I think someone said, wait until you get to the arena of fools in hollow Knight," And I'm not there yet. But I will keep people posted about my progress through that particular game. Um, David, in regards to the Warbringer album, said, Some episodes I do the homework and some I don't. This one I didn't because while I love old-school thrash, I tend not to enjoy the retro pastiche bands. Which I think is always interesting, right? Because a lot of these bands like Havoc and Warbringer get thrown into that uh, sort of general description, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean...
1: to be fair oh, as we said on the episode don't, you know their their logo and cover art immediately makes you think oh this is a, a retro pastiche f- throwback band you know it's like they don't do themselves any favors in that sense
0: i guess i, I mean i'd love to unpack that at some point because i, I feel like um, i feel like that's said negatively a lot of the time when well it, only in the sense know, from- that it
1: means that people who don't want retro throwback pashti stuff will avoid it you know right but on the other hand people like you who love <laughs> that stuff are gonna go hey this is an album for me and you're not wrong
0: but even in a lot of the media i i often see it used in like a negative way in the sense of as opposed to like where i think a lot of these bands are coming from is like we're trying to keep this you Keep know, uh, era of music alive, right? And carry the torch for it. And the, like the whole thing with the new wave of like traditional heavy metal and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I just, uh, it, I, I mean, it's the internet. So clearly everything is reductionist and everything is like, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of thrown into a category for the sake of, uh, you know, debate or whatever. But yeah, it's always interesting to me that that, um, is you not just for this genre, but is often used as like, oh, yeah, well, these guys are just kind of a, You know, there's kind of playing 90s thrash and that kind of stuff. And it's like, yes, I wish more bands. I wish the (laughs) bands that played 90s thrash were playing 90s thrash still to this day. Um, But yeah, so it's always, but he said, and this is the turn here. He said, I'm listening to the episode now and I can absolutely see why they don't like being described that way. Because I'm really enjoying what I'm hearing. I'll definitely be checking out the album properly after I finish the episode and dropping back in here with some of my thoughts um and he said uh okay first of all i need to call bullshit on myself i said i tend not to enjoy retro thrash bands and actually now that i've thought about it that's bollocks uh what's more <laughs> truthful is i enjoy the heck out of them while i'm listening to them he said i love gamma bomb for example but i find them extremely disposable uh he says now here's why i wouldn't lump warbringer in with municipal waste and toxic holocaust and so on those bands generally seem to be trying to make records that feel like they were released in 1985 and where they do incorporate newer ideas they always feel very tacked on the aim is about the nostalgia as much as it is about the music he said these guys not so much in this regard but only in this regard sadly the album reminds me of the last power trip album in that it feels not so much like an artifact of a bygone era as a new album in an old genre that nevertheless acknowledges everything else that's happened in metal since then. Which it's is thrash exactly album what you were at just core. Saying, isn't it? Yeah, totally. He said it's a thrash album at its core, but it's a thrash album that could only have been released now and clearly shows the influence of modern metal on every track. I like that about it. Another decent comparison would be Testament's modern albums, which are 100% thrash albums, but incorporate plenty of later styles in there. He goes on after that, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a
1: good point, actually, yeah, the comparison with Modern Testament, because that's exactly what they're doing, isn't it? Like, you you couldn't – something like Dark Roots of Earth could never have been made in 1989.
0: Totally. And I feel like with this Warbringer album and with the Havoc album that we talked about, uh, there is – it is that sort of two sides of the coin thing, where there is very much um, the genre of yesteryear, but they are incorporating things in that make it feel fresh to me. So that was uh, a lot of great stuff there from David. Uh, Tortoth said, Halfway through, I can certainly hear The Bathory in song four. Unraveling, in my opinion, uh, is their nod to punk rock roots. That song would fit well in an older, unseen album like So This Is Freedom or Lower Class Crucifixion. Uh, Chris said, I kept hearing elements of one of my favorite albums, A History of Time to Come by Sabbath. He said, I enjoyed the majority. And I, I know that they listed... Them as a uh, influence when I was referring to the YouTube documentary that they did about oh, yeah. this album yeah. where they kind of unpacked all of that stuff. So it came up multiple times, I think, in that. Um, let's see. Greg said, am I the only person that thought this would be a great Megadeth album if it just had Dave Mustaine on vocals? <laughs> um, now, before you laugh about that, because I'm sure he is probably one of the only ones that have, that, that thought that, uh, I have not heard the episode yet, but listening to the album, I thought it was a very mid-90s Megadeth, and musically, I loved it. I did struggle with John... Uh, Keeble's vocals, though, I found them to be too weak, and he needs to either growl it out more, or go more melodic, but avoid the middle ground style he seems to relish in, to which your response was um, that you literally felt the opposite of that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Pretty much. Well, no, no. It it wasn't that I felt literally the opposite in terms of his vocals. Uh, It was that um, yeah, this album to me I don't know if you put Dave Mustaine's vocals on it, it would certainly make it worse in my opinion. Uh but also I just didn't to me it didn't feel like a Megadeth sounding album even musically because it had in you know to my mind stronger songs and better hooks. Uh and yes it was technical, you know we talked about this in the episode they're clearly very very accomplished musicians but I didn't feel most of the time that they that that was getting in the way of the songs which i you know I've, as i've commented before i think is often a problem with megadeth that dave mustaine's so busy trying to show how clever he is on the guitar that he forgets to write a decent song
0: yes and without invoking my you know pulling out my uh, megadeth defense force business card and uh, <laughs> litigating everything that you just said uh what i and i don't we don't talk about Dave Mustaine's vocals a lot and I think people feel like I would I want to hear him sing everything. I don't. I feel like his vocals have uh, for a lot of reasons including some health related reasons have just gotten progressively worse over the years. Um and I find it interesting because like when there was a time where uh Hetfield clearly, you know, went and got singing lessons and and decided to get more melodic in his singing and stuff like that and a lot of people prefer modern Hetfield to sort of his his kind of scream vocals from early in the day for me i feel like that was dave mustaine's best era of vocals you know it was a combination of him just kind of snarling and growling and and you know uh, almost like spoken vocals with his you know uh raspy screams and stuff like that in the early megadeth albums and then he tried at one point to get more melodic and tried to incorporate that and i have never really thought that that worked well for um for them in fact I'm, I'm they have a new album coming up sometime hopefully in the next year and i'm very interested to see what his vocal approach is there because i feel like now the music is much further ahead than the vocals um with a lot of the stuff that they do but i really like to back to warbringer john kevel's vocals and i think as we talked about during that episode like whatever that is is my favorite thing. That's your jam. Yeah. Yeah. That's my jam, whatever, whatever we want to call that. If it's not, um, you know, if that's not goblin or whatever, (laughs) but that like, and I was just listening to Exodus with, uh, Zetro and I was listening to overkill with Bobby blitz. And like, that is all just so perfectly in my wheelhouse. And so I, I love it on, uh, I love it on this album. Uh, let's see. Kyle said, I really enjoyed the album and the coverage. The lyrics were a good, strong point. And I'm going to recommend it to my military history podcast friends. Wow. How about that? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Kenneth said, great chat as always. So this album lost me at the bit where the singer screams firepower kills. I mean it was a bit dodgy before that, but the vocal just killed the album for me. Well,
1: all five seconds before then, yeah.
0: Pretty sure that's the first song <laughs> on the album. So yeah. it it didn't uh I think there's like uh, isn't
1: there about five or ten seconds of uh, yeah. guitar before then and, and that's I'm gonna <laughs> say, Kennan, I don't know
0: if you gave the album enough of a runway to impress you if <laughs> if uh if that was the part where we lost you. Uh, he said, there's just too much trad thrash going on here for me to get on board, and the vocals are far too cheesy for me. Heart of Darkness is the best song on here, kind of like Iron Maiden trying to write a black metal song, which is fun, but then those vocals come back to ruin everything. He said, oh, well, looking forward to dusting off my rant about 90s drum production for the homework. Well, <laughs> little, little uh, Oh, we'll have plenty there.
1: to say about the drums, don't worry.
0: Uh, Dave brought up uh, Chuck Beebe's, uh, of course, black metal series, which then you... Uh, apologize for not mentioning more clearly on the show when we did that
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so rick spears and chuck baby have a three volume graphic novel series literally called black metal uh from Oni press and it is it is brilliant uh it is so obviously written by guys who know and love metal um yep. and are you know in the same way that we do are able to sort of look at it clearly and go yeah you know some parts of this are a bit silly and over the top and what have you but that's the fun of it that's kind of the point and that's what we like about it um yeah it's the tale of two twin brother black metal uh, br- twin brothers who are black metal fans and musicians who then discover that they're reincarnations of the devil essentially uh and then go to hell and you know fight everyone and take it over and it- it's just great it-, it is everything you love about the grandeur, ridiculousness, and sort of, you know, epic silliness and brilliance of heavy metal.
0: Yeah, and I have uh, the first volume of that series in hard copy format over on my bookshelf over here, which I picked up at the Oni booth at New York Comic Con.
1: Oh, I've, I've got all I three, it but then I, I used to be on Oni's comps list, so I, <laughs> I just used to get everything.
0: But I, And there's I, a, a link here. I would have uh, bought Dave them anyway, because put- they are great. Yeah, Dave put a link here to the to the omnibus where you get all the volumes in one. So if people want to check that out, oh, I didn't out. know
1: there was an omnibus edition. Fantastic.
0: Yep. So let's see. Uh, JD said, while I was a little another trash uh, trad thrash band, yay, going into the weapons of tomorrow, it won me over during the first couple of minutes. While the album can be very trad in parts, the modern influences come together. For a fresh, interesting sound, I'm glad King Diamond got mentioned a few times because I was listening to some of the cries and the lyrics and wondering if I was just going nuts. Not the influence I would have expected to find here, but I love it. Uh, There's a hint of cheese, cheese in the lyrics, but obviously I don't mind it. I also enjoy the theatricality as it sets the band apart from too many in the genre, and that is a point that I feel like cannot be made enough. Like I think we've talked about this before, but heavy metal is professional wrestling, and if you don't like I, I don't understand the sort of negativity towards theatricality and um like over-the-top lyrics and stuff like that because it, it is like there's no it this idea of like something's metal, right? And something's tough and something's manly and stuff like that. And it and it's all just professional wrestling. So I love bands that embrace uh imagery and theatricality and and you know try to really work that into their songs and stuff like that to me it's just it just uh enhances whatever it is that they're doing so yeah i totally agree that uh cheese in the lyrics is um sometimes it can go overboard but at the same time like i I like a band that tries to paint a picture
1: yeah i mean we have talked about this before it's i think that it's understandable that uh you know a lot of People and a lot of metal fans go through a kind of anti image phase of like, no, no, fuck the poses, fuck image. You know, everything's yeah. got to be real and, and authentic and, and crayon and all that stuff. And, you know, I was a bit like that myself when I was a young teenager. it's It's a phase we all go through. But then there comes the realization that even being anti image is in itself an image. <laughs> right you know it's a hundred percent it's the paradox is that because metallica when they started famously you know were kind of a no we go on stage in our street clothes we don't have stage costumes we don't stuff. do it's music
0: like, videos
1: right and it's like okay that's fine but that in itself is still an image and a stance that you're taking that is a deliberate choice that you are making um and it depends on the kind of music as well you know look at all the sort of the the doom metal bands like my Dime Brand and Brian stuff that i love and you know, who will willingly happily say yeah we are pretentious. What's wrong with that?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, totally. A hundred percent. Let's see. A lot of good feedback on this particular album. Uh, Stuart said, as with the others, I thought I'd not enjoy this so much, but I did. And that's, the, I mean, just in general, as you can see from a lot of these comments, there was there a lot was of that, kind I, of there? Yeah. There was an expectation going in, and I think people came out the other side with that subverted a little bit, um, I think whether possibly- they loved it or just kind of enjoyed it. You know, I think it, it it turned some. It reminds me a little bit of the Twisted Sister episode. That's exactly did where, what I
1: was just going to say. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, where people, uh, which is kind of my favorite thing on this show, is when you know people have. And to go back to the kind of what we talked about before, when you have sort of your schema for whatever you think that this is going to be, um, and then it kind of changes that on you. Uh, so, anyways, to finish his comment, he said, uh, "I've been trying to work out what it reminds me of." From the 80s that I enjoyed back then, still not worked it out completely, but I hear occasional hints of Exodus, some Megadeth, and some riffs remind me of Metallica. The guitar tone especially takes me back to the late 80s, just in time for parts of the drum sound to bring me right back to the current day. He said the drum sound is much fuller than I remember from back then, and faster too. In a way, I only remember Dave Lombardo getting anywhere near.
1: At the time, yeah, certainly in the mid-80s, nobody was playing that. Well, very few people were playing that fast.
0: Uh, let's see. And Art said, I dug what I heard, and unlike Brian, I'm actually familiar with them from an old Thrash compilation that came out over 10 years ago. Aside from my soft spot for hair metal, Thrash is my favorite kind of metal, so while it may be hard to do something entirely new with it, as long as the vocals don't irritate me, I'm all in, and they are certainly no exception. Since Brian didn't have them on his radar, I'm wondering how familiar he is with Evil." Uh... They have been around for quite some time and started as a Metallica tribute band, I believe. Their first album was produced by Fleming Rasmussen. They're really good, and I've been anticipating their follow-up album since it's been ages since their last one came out. I'm not super familiar with them, but I will make myself familiar with them. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Let's see. And then Simon said, "Great album, Brian and Henry, can you really hear the Alex and Eric Testament influence with this record, but with 100,000 drums? Is this the first time T.O. has looked at something black metal-esque? Bring on the throne of Ahaz Mystery.
2: Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like we did that uh, orbit culture album had a lot yes. of you know, black metal-ish elements in it, but we haven't done anything really black metal, no, it's true. Um, yeah, and people have asked it's not us about my, that, and it's just because neither of us are into it. You know, I
0: was just going to say that it's it's not really my wheelhouse. But the further we get into this show, the more I explore, um, yeah, you know, absolutely. things that I've missed and things that I that people are talking about all the time and bringing up and suggesting and things like that. So, um, in well, fact, someone the, this morning, the more we just, have to,
1: in a sense, because you know we kind of. <laughs> <laughs> we've done <laughs> either the obvious bands and our favorite bands and that sort of thing. So we have to explore a little more, but that's good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the case of, to bring it all back to fear factory, in the case of fear factory, a band that I was never really big into certainly knew existed, saw to go back to what you were saying about festivals, you know, in the Ozfest years and the Gigantour tour years and stuff like that, they were around, they were on a lot of those tours, but never, Were huge in terms of my, you know, general day to day music listening. And so this was an opportunity to really go back and dive into what many people hold up as like their classic masterpiece album.
1: Yeah. I was actually really surprised, pleasantly surprised at how many people responded really well to the homework last episode. And when we said that this was the album we were going to do, were leaping up and down going fucking yes yes because like at the time when this album was released like fear factory it sold a shitload of records and they were a popular band no question but they weren't metallica popular you know um yeah and i certainly in my little circle i was the only person who loved this band uh i got into the so I, <laughs> I first came across Fear Factory. This will, I'm sure some people will uh, laugh at this, but I first came across them because their first album, uh, Soul of a New Machine, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with that at all. But then they released a remix EP called Fear is the Mind Killer. And on there is a remix of Self Immolation with, like, a breakbeat and, you know, sort of samples of Burton's vocals and shit. And it was on regular rotation at the Goth Industrial Club, Contamination Club, that I used to go to when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I mean, it would literally get played almost every single club night and would fill the dance floor. It was really popular. And I was like, this is great. Who's this? And Kev, the DJ, was like, oh, it's Bank Fear Factory. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And then, not long after, they released Demanufacture. And I don't recall what the Kerrang! review was like, but I recall that it was positive. You know, it was it was a good review. Um, and then, of course, that cover. The cover of this album, the Dave McKean cover with the the, the barcode rib cage. Yeah. I already knew Dave McKean's art at that point, uh, obviously, and, and I knew he did, you know, album covers. He'd done uh, a couple of Paradise Lost albums by that point as well. And I just fucking I loved the cover. Uh, I knew I liked that one track, so I was like, yeah, okay, I'll buy it. Uh, and <laughs> I i was not ready. <laughs> I was not ready for this album <laughs> in 1995, let me tell you, because it was so heavy. And Bell's vocals were quite unusual at the time. Um, but I remember trying to get people into this album and into the band, and there was so much resistance um, because they were so fast and so heavy and so sort of clinical and mechanical – sound in that they were way too heavy for you know non-metal heads but again kind of going to what we were just mentioning earlier traditional metal heads people who were you know big into the metal scene at that time uh were like well this is this just sounds like an industrial band but the industrial fans were like no they, they, they it's too metal <laughs> So I, yeah, I just, I came across a lot of resistance trying to get people into this band. So I was really pleased to see how many of our listeners dig it.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, you have a better origin story for, you know, you getting into this band than I do for me, it was uh, Johnny Cage and Scorpion that introduced me to oh, this yeah, band yeah. when I went to see Mortal Kombat in the movie theater, which we'll talk about when we get to that um, particular song, but that's how I, you know, came across this band and, uh, so that was my sort of in. But once I heard it, I was like, huh, oh, okay, interesting. And this album, I don't even think I got this album when it first came out because that was a weird time for music for me. When when this album came out, which was 95, right? Yeah. So just looking at 95, uh, some of the other albums that came out that year, Slaughter of the Soul from At the Gates, which we've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, symbolic from Death. Oh, yeah uh let's see what else the angel in the dark river by my dying bride
1: classic album yep you want to talk about uh, astro creep
0: 2000 <laughs> which i would say if, oh yeah uh, uh, of that year the album that probably got the most coverage probably would you say? so well astro uh, creep 2000
1: and set the trends of that year certainly
0: and so which was definitely an album that i picked up at the time and then uh nola from down came out that year. Uh, Landed the free from gamma ray came out that year, and of course, uh, you know, this album came out that year. And so for me, God, was it wasn't Nola a time really.
1: Nineteen ninety five was it that long yeah. ago? Jesus Christ!
0: Yep, isn't that crazy, man? Um, and I was a junior in college at that particular time, and so that was just a crazy time in my life. And I was actually in school with not. My immediate circle of friends at that particular time in school wasn't a lot of metalheads. And so for the first time, it wasn't, I probably wasn't as steeped in music as I had been throughout all of middle school and high school, and certainly freshman year of college and stuff like that. There was just, I was living the college life. And so I just wasn't listening to music at the same rate that. Yeah. Pretty much every other time in my life I was listening to music. And so some of those mid-90s, mid-to-late-90s years kind of went by, and I, and there was a lot of stuff that I kind of missed the first time around because of that. And certainly Fear Factory, again, like, I, I remember more Fear Factory, like, seeing them a couple years later when their name was all over tours that were happening and, and uh, you know, summer festivals and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I think to anyone who's been listening to the show, it's fairly clear that I was the opposite. To me, (laughs) like 92, 93 through to 96, 97 was probably my peak listening. uh, I mean, you know, like like you, like many of our listeners, I'm sure, I've always been into music. I've always listened to a lot of music, but that was my peak for sure. That was when I was most engaged in it. It was when I was in most bands myself, you know, when I was kind of working hardest to uh be in bands and sort of make my own music it was when i was listening to the most music it's probably when i went to the most gigs as well during that sort of four or five year span uh including a lot of festivals and stuff do you know i actually i was trying to think i'm not sure if i've seen fear factory live i genuinely can't remember if i've seen them live or not i have a feeling that i have at a festival somewhere maybe at milton keen's bowl or something but I genuinely cannot remember.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm actually the same, because I know that they were on Gigantour, which was a Megadeth-run uh, festival show, and I know that they were on Ozfest, both of which are shows that I attended in multiple years. Um, but I'd have to go back and look, and I, I should have done that before we well, started there's this There's so episode, many
1: bands at those festivals, on so many different stages quite often, that... Well, especially
0: um, Ozfest with the whole second stage, for sure.
1: Exactly, yeah. Unless they stand out it's really like i mean i do remember uh one specific all dayer uh that i went to and i can't i can't think if it was a all day or so i'm not sure who organized it but a big all day that was at milton keynes that had two stages and i mainly remember that because it was the first time i'd seen Derek green's version as it were of sepultura i remember ministry were terrible because they were on at three o'clock in the afternoon or something shit like that and it was just you know <laughs> That was not a good place to see them. Uh, and I remember that Terrorvision of all people, absolutely <laughs> fucking ruled the second stage. They were one of the best bands of the day, uh, which, you know, was not at all <laughs> what I think anybody there expected. But there must have been 20 bands playing that day, and those are the literally the only three that I can remember. I cannot well, remember and for me, the, the
0: second stage uh, standouts were the second stage closers. One, Rob Zombie closed the second stage one year at OzFest and was I absolutely am. incredible. Uh, and then Black Label Society closed the second stage at OzFest. And then Zach played with Ozzy that oh, evening nice. as well. And uh, those were two that stood out at me. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, so many bands on a lot of those stages. Um, So I feel like I've seen Fear Factory at some point. yeah. But I can't (laughs) definitively say that without going back and looking through my ticket stubs. And
1: and I liked them so much around this period. And like I say, this was my biggest gig-going period for sure. So uh, I'm sure I must have seen them at some point. I just don't recall it, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, this album and then the following album, Obsolete, which was – it's funny, actually, because this album is kind of – Uh, it's another case where this album is definitely more raw than Obsolete. Like this was the album that really pushed them over the top and made them incredibly popular. Uh, And then they used all that popularity and money uh, to make Obsolete, which is basically kind of the same album, but, uh, you know, much more polished with much more money behind it and sort of, you know, more polished songwriting and everything. But as a result, I don't like it as much. Like it's good. It's a good album. But I think this is a better album because it's more raw, because it's got that energy, uh, because it's maybe a little more unusual than Obsolete, which is kind of, Obsolete is much more, okay, this is what sort of band we are, so these are what the sort of songs that we're going to write. Whereas D-Manufacture, to me anyway, feels more like an album going, we're not entirely sure what kind of band we are, but we think we'd want to do this, so we're going to try writing these songs. and yeah, as I say, so as a result, I think it's got a lot more energy than, obviously, and is a, a better album.
0: Um, it definitely has a ton of energy. And I think you're right, just in terms of, like, you can kind of feel the sound coming together. Yeah. Like, it, it, just in terms of, like, their kind of overall journey. Um, but well, this was an album that I had not, I mean, I, I'm sure I've listened to it once or twice back in the day, but it was not, like, top to bottom familiar with. Because, like I said, oh, it was... Oh, that's funny. I was more familiar with the Mortal Kombat soundtrack, which right. they were on, uh, than I was with you know this full album. So, which was cool to kind of see when the homework was announced. Like people would be like, "Oh my god, I can't wait for this album!" And, and people are so psyched about it because for me, it's not one of those that like in my in my the museum in my head that this is like a a seminal album, but it clearly is.
1: Yeah. Yeah well I mean yeah just sort of objectively historically in terms right. of metal it is yeah totally. absolutely a, a landmark album but also it genuinely was for me you know like I say this was I listened to this album so much over and over and again I know every you know every nuance every beat every uh you know uh kick of Raymond Herrera's drums and what have you it's just every quirk of Burton's vocals uh I know, I do know this album top to bottom um But that said, it had been a while since I'd listened to it fully all the way through, uh, before the homework. And so that's a really funny thing. Like I, I knew I liked it. Like I say, I listened to it loads at the time, but I was worried that it wouldn't hold up. I'd kind of thought, oh yeah, but it, you know, but that was back in the nineties and it's, uh, you know, kind of things have moved on now and it's not going to stand up. And yet I really think it does. Um, And I've seen people over the years say how it's one of those albums that loads of people have tried to emulate and nobody's really succeeded. Like not even Fear Factory themselves have really succeeded in recapturing whatever it was about this album. And I think that's absolutely true because it's 30 years old, for heaven's sake, and yet it is still really heavy. It's, yeah, okay, in terms of tempo, it's not literally as fast as the fastest albums out there, but it's still pretty fucking fast, you know? <laughs> it's
0: Oh, there's parts of it that are blistering. Yeah, and, Raymond's drums um, still
1: sound amazing. It's like Dino's guitar work. You know, people laugh about Dino. Dino, you know, on this song, Dino plays all three chords. Um, But it yeah, is well, so fucking good, so precise. It's incredible.
0: It is, but I think it for me, it's the drums and the vocals that provide the uniqueness of the sound, Like there's the, I, I feel like the, the guitars are just so aggressive and heavy that they're great. But if there's something on this album that, that feels samey to me and blends together from song to song, it's the guitars. Um, again, not that that's a bad thing, but I feel like it's and the, and I have mixed feelings about the vocals, but the vocals are what makes this band like super unique in my nobody
1: else sounds like bell
0: exactly the combination of uh you know the sort of growly vocals versus the more clean melodic vocals and that and almost like spoken word vocals in some uh area like that just that combination when it's used how it's used uh how it plays in different songs and stuff like that is what makes this still sound fresh today other than the fact that it, it's just a super aggressive album. And yeah. and from like from a metal standpoint, if you put it on and you hit play and you crank it up, like you're gonna get blasted. Yeah. And <laughs> and that always holds up. You know what I mean? Like no matter what, that's always gonna hold up from a metal standpoint. Like so.
1: Yeah. I mean that's funny though, because you're absolutely right that listening to it from a modern perspective, I suppose Dino's guitars don't sound like anything particularly special because you know, people do, lots of people play like that now. But at the time, not many people were playing with that kind of precision and putting together riffs that were designed to be played with that kind of precision, you know? Right. Uh Because like, even you listen to sort of, you know, traditional thrash stuff and you'll get people playing, you know, obviously very, very complex, palm muted, you know, chugging riffs. But also, frankly, they're more melodic and less rhythmic than this you know less reliant on one or two chords (laughs) um so at the time certainly from my perspective i you know the guitars felt very very fresh and new but yeah i hadn't thought about the fact that of course yeah as we say in the intervening 20 30 years loads of people now play in that kind of same very rhythmic style that plays along with the drums as it were
0: well speaking of the drums like ray herrera's drums are ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous oh. <laughs> on this album and um to the point where and i know that this was like at the time people were like is that a machine oh it was that- a controversy yeah 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 uh but and the funny thing is, is i'm like man that reminds me of like gene hoagland well sure enough gene Hogan played on one of the yes. fear factory albums uh mechanized i think it was like a like several years later and so but that's what it reminded me of and in that he's probably one of the only people that's ever reminded me of Hoagland in terms of that, like, the fact that you could mistake it for a machine.
1: Yeah, the atomic uh, just
0: with thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, which was wild. Those drums are crazy. Well,
1: um, it wasn't helped by the fact that he, he, had, he uses triggers. Uh, and obviously, again, these days, that's fairly common, but in the mid-90s, not so much. And... You were there was resistance to it in the metal scene because you were kind of getting into people saying, Well, but then you're not actually listening to the drums. And some people didn't understand what triggers were and they thought that that meant it was a machine rather than you know him triggering them with his feet. Um, yeah, it's uh, I mean, I don't know if the use of triggers also specifically came from Reese Fulber. That's the other thing we should mention about this album. Reese Fulber had quite an influence on them, and of course, you know, people uh, know him now for helping produce lots of metal bands but at the time it was quite unusual because he was very much an industrial you know from frontline assembly very much a sort of heavy industrial uh, musician but he came on to help them out with atmospheres and keyboards and things like that i don't know if he might have also suggested using triggers because i don't think herrera used triggers on soul of a new machine um you know you listen to that and that doesn't sound like triggers that sounds like you're actually hearing his drums
0: And they kind of had a falling out with their previous producer, Colin Richardson, right? Where he had worked with them on the album beforehand, but as they kind of dug into this album, whatever, whatever approach he was trying to get them to take, especially with Dino, it sounds like, really didn't mesh well and i'm trying to remember where i saw it but but basically like the whatever sound he was going for on this album is not they kind of had a falling out and so that's where they ended up bringing other people in to help work on the album
1: yeah well they were going for a sort of mechanized sound they wanted things to sound mechanized and precise and clean and all that sort of thing and uh richardson I mean, their first album is much more straight up death metal than right. this one. Uh, and I think, you know, Richardson obviously was a great producer for that, but it sounds like he was trying to make that album, that style of album, again for this one. And yeah, they they wanted to go in this more industrial, mechanized direction. Um, and he wasn't, for one reason or another, either wasn't able to or wasn't willing to uh help them do that and that was when they turned to reese fulber yeah who obviously was like yes <laughs> i will help yeah, you make an sure. industrial sounding album <laughs> i know we can how to do that. And
0: triple down on that absolutely <laughs>
1: yeah uh it was recorded funny thing about this album was that they apparently went originally talking about industrial they apparently went to tracks studios in chicago to record it originally um and then after a week or two just Abandoned it, upsticks, and went to upstate New York, where they then yes. recorded the rest of the album. And the reason they gave was because it was too chaotic.
0: Yeah, they said there was like drugs being sold out yeah. of there, and it was just uh, yeah, they were
1: literally dealing out you know off the soundboard and shit, and uh, and it was just yeah, chaotic, and there was no organization. And and I'm like considering how young Fear Factory were when they were making this album. You know, they were still at the start of their careers. That's just really surprising to me that a that a young band wouldn't embrace that chaos and would actually go, do you know what no we we're, we're here to work not to fuck around and sell drugs,
0: especially when literally every other documentary of every other band from the eighties and early nineties was would have been the exact opposite exactly, yeah, right of like, oh, we got to Chicago and the place was a friggin party scene. It was awesome. we spent all our money on drugs and and basically hardly spent any on the recording of the album. These guys were like, nah. We need to kind of focus a little bit more. We're going to go somewhere else and, uh, and record this album. So they go to Bearsville Studios in New York and are recording their album at the same time that Bon Jovi is working on their album, which I think is called These Days at that particular point in time. But there was a snippet where they said uh, one of Bon Jovi's engineers asked them to turn the sound down as it was bleeding into the Bon Jovi <laughs> recording sessions
1: yeah yeah there's a, apparently some i can't kind of imagine why long-standing this urban legend that on these days like you know if you listen closely enough you can hear <laughs> fear factory somewhere in the background i doubt that that's true but it's a nice story
0: <laughs> yeah and for all of our bon jovi fans out there don't worry when we get to the bon jovi episode um unfortunately it won't be these days so you'll have to do that homework additionally on your own
1: <laughs> faith no more were there as well apparently yes at the yep. same time um, and I, I never heard stories of, and I didn't come across any doing research for this episode, stories of Fear Factory hanging out with Bon Jovi, but they did become good friends with Faith No More. I think they even toured with them not long after this, and they even borrowed some kit from them to record this album, apparently.
0: Yeah. The only thing I read about it was them basically saying that like of the two bands that were recording there, they obviously, uh, tended to hang out with, uh, Faith No More yeah no
1: i'm sure i'm sure i remember in in the years following i'm sure i remember seeing uh bell and mike patton you became good friends and hung out a lot together and stuff um which is i mean if you're fake no
0: more and you hear these guys recording this album you know in the studio like your interest is peaked.
1: yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: you're probably Um, gonna want to peek
1: in and say oh what's going on over here (laughs) well uh but I did I have wondered over the years if maybe one of the things one of the reasons that uh, Patton and Bell got along was because of Bell's vocal style because while he is clearly not technically as good a singer as Mike Patton like you know Mike Patton for all his shrieking and wailing is technically an extremely accomplished singer Burton C Bell is not but they are both doing something very very different at the time anyway, something very, very different and unusual with their vocals and trying new stuff, you know? And I always wondered if that was maybe a sort of, you know, a, a source of bonding between them.
0: That is a great point. And you actually just blew my mind a little bit because I hadn't, in like going over my reference points for like what I would compare this album to and stuff like that, Faith No More is not one of the ones that I put on that list. But now that you mention it, it makes perfect uh
1: well, I mean, perfect sense yeah, in I mean, terms
0: of like the uniqueness of the approach, right? Exactly, like that, yeah. that type of uh, yeah, I mean, because Mike Patton was doing no... things that other people weren't doing. Other bands yeah. that were alongside them were not doing what Mike Patton was doing.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, Bell claims that he created the the harsh verse, clean chorus style, which, of course, you know, we know is very, very popular these days. You know, has become a sort of a fairly standard style in metal bands he claims that he was the first to do that i'm not sure if that's exactly true but he was definitely one of the first and because of the enormous success that fear factory had around this period i think i don't think there's any question that he popularized it uh and made it something that like oh you can do that you know and it sounds really good um well and it's like
0: the anti new metal right because the the kind of oh, the other way around yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, the other one is kind of like this, you know, melodically sung or spoken chorus and then screamy, or, or uh, verse, and then screamy chorus, and so this was just completely inverted that.
1: Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. yeah. But you do hear a lot of metal bands these days do the, you know, the harsh verse, sung chorus thing. Um, well, uh, one of the bands that we covered, uh, The Defiled. Uh, yep. You know, that was pretty much their shtick. Almost every song was exactly like that, you know, harsh verse, sing chorus. Um, and Bell does have a fantastic growl like in my opinion one of the best growls in metal uh on record at any rate you regardless of live um because I know there's been some criticism of that especially recently but on record he has an amazing growl like one of my favorites it is so it's aggressive it's forceful but it sounds good uh it's unique you can tell when it you know when you hear a bell growl there's no question that it's him it doesn't sound like anybody else uh I absolutely love it. His clean vocals, on the other hand, (laughs) there is a lot of processing going on there. There's so much. And, you know, you can hide some of it behind saying like oh well it's industrial and uh, we're doing this mechanized style and we're processing the vocals and you know isn't it great uh but also i think a lot of it was just to hide the fact that he doesn't have the strongest cleaning voice uh clean voice in the world uh but it suits it suits the record it works well in the studio um but uh yeah you know you kind of there are places even on this album where you're like Ew, you didn't quite hit that note did you
0: but that kind of rawness is, I think, just works in his favor, in my mind.
1: Yeah, well, like I say, it sounds good, you know, on the record. and it, Yeah, it works in studio. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's... I don't know. I mean, like I say, I do love this album. I'm not going to knock it, but it is one thing that I always kind of thought, like, what if he was a better singer? Like, he's a great vocalist, no question. Like I say, I love his growl, but what if he was an actual better singer as well? Would that have made a significant difference? I don't know.
0: I don't know. I think about that stuff too, because I'm, and I'm obviously, you know, we talked about Mustaine and stuff like that. There, but then I also think, like, there are bands that have better singers right or there are better growlers or bet whatever there's you know whatever their particular style is there are bands that have that but are less memorable True. and so it's almost like these the kind of rough edges on some of these singers are you know like what makes them stand the test of time because mm-hmm. there's there's not there there's not someone like them they're just they just end up standing out for the for the good and the bad in the sense that like it, it's it, you just can't plug somebody else in there and um and so I kind of like that because I think it it's just one of those things that that makes it unique to that band whereas there's so many bands are like awesome singers or awesome screamers or awesome growlers that eh, it just doesn't come to it's not as memorable
1: yeah no that's fair i mean i guess it's a bit like um miller petrosa from creator like, you know, again, very, very unusual voice that can't be mistaken for anybody else. But that's one of the things I do like about it. It's one of the reasons that guy I, freaking
0: uh, rules yeah. and his, uh, their new live album that they were, I think they recorded it in England. I can't remember, but it just came out in this past year is outstanding. Oh, what's it called? Uh, i'll look it up right now okay
1: uh i wasn't aware that they'd uh that they'd released
0: a live album. yeah a creator i have
1: definitely never seen live but i i would if they were on a bill if they were on a festival somewhere or something i would make an effort to go and see them just because you know as we discussed on the uh, uh episode about gods of violence you know i i love miller's voice but also they are just so fucking heavy
0: <laughs> yeah they what the heck is it it just came out this past oh London Apocalypticon live at the Roundhouse.
1: Oh, I know the Roundhouse. Yeah, that is definitely that is in London. It absolutely is. Yeah.
0: So it came out in February of last year, I think. And it is incredible. Oh, like I and and I'm not a huge I keep saying I'm not a huge live albums person, but then I keep finding great <laughs> live albums that I that I get but like historically I'm not a huge live album person, and this is one that you can put on any like the i think of like wasps live in the raw uh the overkill one from a few years ago live at overhouse and uh this one i would absolutely put you know in this in that mix of like just incredible live album so if you haven't checked it out london Apocalypticon,
1: i will definitely be looking for that yeah absolutely um the only other thing i wanted to say sort of generally about this album because, I mean, there's loads we could talk about, you know, Fear Factory and the history between them since, and everybody's falling out, and they're all suing one another, and Bell just announced that he's leaving for good a yeah. few weeks ago, and you know, all that drama, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, and not that I don't care, but I kind of don't care. Um, you just, you're all fucking multi-millionaires, well, dude, out guys, you, you know.
0: <laughs> when you read what the reasoning is behind it, it's the textbook. It's money, it's business. Yeah. It's all the same shit that makes all these bands fall apart at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, it really is, exactly. Um, of all of them, honestly, <laughs> Raymond Herrera seems the most like unconcerned. He's just like, because he left years ago and he's like, yeah, fuck all y'all, I'm off, uh, you know, doing my own thing. <laughs> he just never seems to get involved in the drama anymore. Collects his royalty checks, I'm sure. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say about the album was that it is often listed as a concept album and uh burton bell did claim it was a concept album but not until after it was recorded
0: uh, yeah i don't see it
1: yeah and then afterwards he said like oh yeah it's the first part of a trilogy uh mm. you know with the next album obsolete and then i actually can't remember what the next album after that is i can't remember the title but even at the time i Remember that he was a lot more vague about it. Like when it was released, he was kind of well, it's sort of a concept, I guess. um And I did actually look at some old interviews again, researching this app, and it uh, seems just as clear to me that the success of the album is what made them go, "Okay, let's ride this one." And I, I don't blame them for that at all. I really don't. Yeah, you know, and Bell is famously like he is a genuine massive science fiction fan. That's clear. From this album, it's been clear throughout the years, I, I don't doubt that for a second, that he is a massive science fiction movie and book fan. So the idea of doing a trilogy, a narrative trilogy, I'm sure did genuinely appeal to him. But still, I, I am pretty sure that it wasn't until this album was so successful that they went, oh, okay, let's make a trilogy and we'll just say that this one was the first part.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, when I was in high school and the uh, Queensrank album came out, Operation Mind Mindcrime. Uh, and Phil will correct me if I'm wrong on this, if this is actually like a valid conspiracy theory. But I remember at the time there were so many rumors about how uh, The Warning and Rage for Order, other Queensrank albums, were also concept albums and how they all fit together. Like people were just creating this like meta story of like, how all these albums intersected and really to my knowledge operation mind was the only concept album yeah but it was like this thing of like oh no go back and listen and these these all connect in this way and stuff like that so uh, at least that's fans
1: doing that not members of the band going oh yeah yeah no sure
0: (laughs) well i'm sure if there was the internet at the time they the way that it is today they would probably not have dispelled it if it sold more albums you know people go because yeah, true, that true. you know operation mind crime broke them and uh you know going back to buy those earlier albums if people thought they were connected in some way they'd be like yeah i don't know maybe go check it out yeah <laughs> see if you could solve the mystery <laughs> yeah. i can neither
1: confirm nor deny <laughs> right right you'll just
0: have to listen yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah you tell me what
1: your theory is as you say especially pre-internet days when you had to go and buy it in
0: order to listen (laughs) Uh, totally (laughs) a hundred percent um i did pull a few just things from interviews uh so um uh 13 uh, 2013 interview burton c bell someone asked him what would you you know someone once said write what you would want to perform over and over and over what in mind uh with that in mind what song on this album do you love to perform the most and he said i really love playing uh and performing self-biased resistor to me that is one of the best songs we've ever written actually probably the best song we've ever written uh it's fun to play it's fun to sing and it's just got a great vibe to it and it's a crowd pleaser
1: and it Uh, is a great song i can see that
0: yeah, I'm trying to see what else I, I uh, can, came
1: out about I mean, on the one hand, I'm surprised he didn't say Replica, but on the other hand, I'm not surprised he didn't say Replica because I'm sure that is their Ace of Spades or their... Uh, I'm trying to think of another equivalent, and I can't now. But you know what I mean? That I'm sure that Replica is the song that they literally cannot go a single gig without playing because there would be a riot otherwise. And so he's probably sure. a bit sick of it by now.
0: Uh, Dino, in another interview, was asked... You know, just about the the time. Oh, it was a, a two thousand sixteen article from Louder Sound where they had talked about the concept behind, as, as you just talked about the album. And Dino was basically saying, "Demanufacture and its tales of rebellion against a corrupt, techno- technologically advanced elite." Uh, oh, this is the article it came from the reality of life on the streets of Los Angeles in the first half of the 90s. And so Dino was basically saying from 90 to 95, there was fires, floods, riots, you know, there was, there earthquake. was a huge earth, yep. earthquake that he says that he said, so we saw L.A. being destroyed. You know, um, he said, you know, we saw you know, people shooting each other. We saw looting. We saw the National Guard patrolling our streets at night. He said, so we were living it. Um and that stuff was channeled and put into demanufactory. So the first line you hear on the album is desensitized by the values of life. He said that was what we saw. Um so I thought that was interesting in terms of like what their what sort of fueled their themes of the album.
1: Right, and that's the thing. I like, I wouldn't to be clear, I wouldn't ever say that the album isn't unified by those themes. It it clearly is. Uh, you know, and you can call it a concept album in that sense, in that, yes, it is obviously centered around those themes, but it's not like, you know, you look at it and like, this is not a narrative. <laughs> right, there's it not a narrative yeah. that
0: runs through it from start <laughs> to finish.
1: Yeah, despite what they may claim.
0: Although, hey, man, just go listen to it. You might find, you might <laughs> you solve the know. mystery yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I actually just realized that we didn't go through the, uh, stats as it were (laughs) for the album. So let's just quickly, it was released in 1995, uh, on the main, the the regular release has 11 songs and it runs to 55 minutes, which is
0: quite long. Um, I would say so for the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's relatively long, but you know, anything under an hour is still kind of, you know, not too much. Um, I actually have the, the European digipack release. I went and got the, when I bought it, which, you know, and as I say, it dates right back to, uh, the, uh, day of release. I bought it, you know, when it came out and yeah, it's the, the European digipack, which has some bonus tracks on it, uh, remixes and a couple of covers and stuff like that. But I know that they're, it's one of those albums that's been released in so many different versions and what have you that. You know, let's just forget about those and we'll just talk about the main eleven songs of the of the regular album. Alrighty. And we'll start with track one, demanufacture.
0: Yeah, I mean, this song gives you a pretty darn good idea of what you're getting yourself <laughs> in for, um, and I, I think that that's the first note I have is just aggressive, like it's just aggressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the 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 mach- the industrialness, the machine. You know, noises, the samples, things like that, the just brutal chugging riffs and then the drums that sound like at first listen like a machine, just like pummeling you right out of the gate. And there's a part in this song as it gets to the end where it like it just doubles down on this like furious finish. And it's just I think everything you're going to get on this album, you get in the first song, which makes it a great opening song.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that before, haven't we, where uh, this is a perfect opening song in that if you don't like this, you ain't going to like the rest of the album. But if you do like this, you're in for a fucking great time for the next 55 (laughs) minutes. Uh, Because, yeah, this just encapsulates pretty much everything about the album. It's got, you've got that lovely atmospheric intro, you know, with a, a bit of atmospheres and keyboards and stuff. Raymond's kick drum is just incredible you know so precise so fast uh you know during the the double runs and stuff you got that the um juddering effect you know by sampling the guitar and then cutting it out on pro tools and stuff on the guitar chugging and it matches the speed of the guitar chugging as well that's the thing like a lot of the time that effect is done and it's it's obviously faster than what's really being played but if you listen to it they have matched the speed of dino's actual playing uh, yeah. which I think is great because you hear it and you're like oh, that's, oh no he really is playing that fast <laughs> um, and of course and then it all kicks off and you've got Bell's clean vocals with a sort of flange effect on them it is just it's a wall of noise and aggression as you say you've got a gunshot layered in at the end of the first verse uh, as percussion it's yeah it's so much anger and aggression and you know sort of yeah young man fury <laughs> In this track, that I just totally. I, I fell in love with it immediately,
0: and and to go back to you know kind of the lyrics and and what Dino was saying about like what was happening at the time the the first opening line desensitized by the values of life maligned and despaired by government lies right and yeah. so especially like when you see the national guard patrolling the streets when you see you know stuff happening in your neighborhood and stuff like that like that to me these lyrics are more reflective which goes to your theory Anthony about maybe the whole. You know, uh, maybe the whole Terminator storyline running through it was kind of an afterthought because this, to me, matches much more with like someone who's living in LA at the time and just kind of taking in everything that's going on and having that sort of reflect in their in their lyrics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and musically, like I say, at the time it was like nothing anybody else was doing, and kind of still is um, with. Again, Raymond... And we should point out that uh, Raymond Herrera and Dino Cazares are the two main musical songwriters on this album. Like, you know, Raymond was more than, quote-unquote, just a drummer. Uh, He... The band was essentially started when him and Dino began jamming together uh, and realised that they were compatible. And then Christian Olderwalbers and Burton Bell came in. Well, Burton Bell came in, sorry. They did the first album. Then Christian Olderwalbers joined for this album. Um, but the core musically of the band was always Dino and Raymond. And you can kind of tell because they're so uh, in sync.
0: I, yeah. If you did the uh, the Pepsi challenge with this one and, and you know, just tried to <laughs> kind of came into it blindly and were like, what do you think the two major influences, it's the drums and the and the guitars.
1: Yeah, without question. But yep. even then, when you get that section in this song, the I am the thorn in your eye uh, section, those are open chords like you know he kind of they're unafraid to which at the time in the mid 90s was still a bit controversial like it was it was more accepted and you know certainly the grunge band's influence and what have you had made it more acceptable but for a band as heavy as this that like i said you know their first album was pretty much almost straight up death metal for them to use open chords in this section to create that wall of noise, rather than sticking with the uh, the palm muted and the chugging, that was kind of unusual at the time, but it works so well because it just makes that whole section feel so energetic and so loud. Um, no solos, of course. That's the other thing on this album. There's, you know, there are parts of middle eights in these songs where Dino does a kind of repeating lead line lead melody line but they're not really solos you know you yeah. could, you could never call them that uh and that was another thing which again was some more bands were doing but was still pretty unusual um so yeah it just the whole thing as we said this track is just like whoa you know you've never heard anything quite like this before but if you like it you're going to like the rest of the album uh and if you don't you won't
0: yeah, and then um, the vocal. I mean, obviously, this is the first song on the album, so you're getting acclimated to the vocal stylings of Bell yep. here, and um, it's not always easy to make out what this dude is growling about. In <laughs> you know, so I had to go, <laughs> I had to go and look up. So actually, it, and his delivery style at points in this song, it reminds me of the band Oakley Dokely, which is the Ned Flanders uh, like metal band. Um, that is a parody of the simpsons and there's a song that they put out called white wine spritzer that uh makes me that reminds me a lot of the vocal delivery <laughs> in parts of the song where uh you know i'm barely hanging on there to to what he's uh saying of course there are points where it's you know incredibly clear and i love how as we get to the i've got no more goddamn regrets i've got no more goddamn respect and then it's just regrets respect regrets respect like the the way this song builds to the end is kind of incredible when you think about how aggressively it began right (laughs) you know like like that's which i think you think they've peaked (laughs) yeah and and this isn't the only song that that kind of like doubles down on what is already a hellaciously aggressive like rhythm and um and that to like to your point about like, does it still hold up today? Like, hell yes, it still holds up today. And like, th- this song just, um, it like quickens your, your heart rate in, in some of the ways that it just like, it, it finds another gear. And I think that's really effective. And, it, and in this song, like the way it builds to the finish is just like furious.
1: Yeah. And I think you can put most of that down to Herrera's drumming, like just the sheer, power and speed and skill of his drumming but also taste you know the songwriting qualities uh in his drumming so that he even though it sounds yeah that he's peaked at the start he hasn't and there is another gear to shift into and the power of bell's vocals the power of his growl it's just so loud and uh you know like kind of like a wounded beast or something <laughs> it's yeah uh, yeah as you say at the end it is. When he's just roaring regret, respect, and everything's going like furiously underneath him, uh, it's fantastic. What a great ending.
0: Yeah, f- phenomenal. So, yeah. Uh, as far as like opening track goes, that's a five star opening track right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then straight into track two self bias resistor.
0: he obviously said is one of his favorite songs that they've ever created and certainly favorite to perform. This is another one where super fast and aggressive and then it's not the end per se, but there's there's parts of the song where it like doubles down on, like it gets a little bit faster and a little bit heavier and it's like, I just equate it to like pushing the gas pedal down further. Like there's, there's like elevations and aggression in in the song that I think is really impressive. Um, and this is the first one where I was like, man, this is like the opposite of new metal with the whole like uh, <laughs> scream, the verse, <laughs> sing the chorus sort of thing. Uh, and I, I made a note, like inverted new metal in terms of the way that he was uh, doing it. And this one is the first song where I feel like you start to feel that Pantera like groove. Yeah. That you get in a bunch of their songs here where there's definitely, which is kind of cool, right? Because you're talking about this sort of mechanized, um, this, this theme of technology in, in this industrial thing. And then you're getting these grooves that get thrown in there as well, which I think is really kind of cool. Uh, and, and of course that's a part where he's, you know, saying, uh, life, you know, he's drawing out the word, uh, like at the two minute mark over and over and over yeah. again. Um, you get that like Pantera-like groove. And so, which is cool because that's very different than what you get in the first song.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you wouldn't have got a riff like that in the opener. I mean, this song is so, again, at the time was so unusual. You've got that sort of syncopated, percussive opening that throws you off a little bit. Almost as if, I mean, the first line is, hey, you wake up. And the music kind of makes you do that. Because the opening drums make you go, oh, hang on, I've got to pay attention to this. You know, this is not necessarily what I was expecting. Uh, the the clean stop before the first chorus where everything drops out except the vocals. I mean, I, I, we've said before, I'm a sucker for that. So I love that part about it. Yep. And I think these are probably Bell's best clean vocals on the album, actually. Um, when he's singing the chorus, when he's doing all these years they've tried to break you to your knees. That's probably his best performed couplet uh, or, you know, uh, f- whole four lines of the chorus, actually, on the whole album, I think. He he absolutely nails that one. Um, yep. But, here's a good example, talking to the chorus, of how this is a band that uses dynamics. I talk about this all the time, I know. But this is a band that uses dynamics rather than melody to drive a song forward. Because, like I say, there are no solos, and they don't often... There are no key changes, <laughs> or anything like that. And they're not the most melodic band in the world, but... What you get is, here's a good example. In the first chorus, the second half of the first chorus, now it's time to put an end to all the lies, Herrera keeps up with the sort of stabbing snare rhythm, you know, that's not just going th- on the, the two and the four. It's like sort of slightly out of, t- well, not out of time, but, you know, not doing those two and four rhythms. But then in the second chorus, when he gets to that same bit, he's doing double time on the snares. So it's more like a traditional thrash beat. Music's exactly the same. But he's doing double time on the snares, and it helps it feel as if the second chorus is faster, as if it's speeding up and like heading to a climax. And then that resolves in that halftime groove section that you just mentioned, uh, the sort of Pantera-esque bit. And that, like I say, the music itself per se doesn't change. Dino's not playing anything different, uh, but just by altering the dynamics of the drums and the rhythm, you get that feeling of the song moving and having those peaks and valleys.
0: Yeah, and just like pushing the gas pedal down, like in those certain spots, right? And then like letting off of it a little bit, yeah. like it does definitely give that feel to it.
1: The breakdown in this song as well, I really like because it is just pure percussive rhythm. There's no melody really <laughs> in the breakdown here at all, but it is. Which I mean, is I'm sure has helped be an influence on you know sort of modern uh you know immensely dropped tuning breakdowns um but yeah it's it's so good it's so well done such a great rhythm and honestly this is probably the song i realise this is probably the song that i think of first when i think of this album like if you say "Demanufacture to me it is bell singing all these years they've tried to break you to your knees that's kind of the first thing i associate with this album I mean, replica as well, but yeah, you know, this is definitely also there as, like, oh yeah, that's what this album is. So let's move on to track three Zero Signal.
0: mortal combat song yes i was that guy in the cinema who almost stood up in my chair and went that's fair factory <laughs> and uh, like i went back and watched you can find on youtube like the whole uh johnny cage scorpion fight where this song is playing and, and it starts when they sort of drop into hell or wherever scorpions uh you know uh stages yeah right and they're battling back and forth there and that was one of the longer fights in the movie, I believe. So you get to hear a lot of the song, I think, in the in that particular kind of passage there. Um, but yeah, that that was my introduction basically to this band is, you know, hearing them. And that was such a standout soundtrack, first of all. It's one of the I can't even think of another movie soundtrack that I bought before Mortal Kombat. But oh, wow. I definitely bought the not, not Mortal the Kombat soundtrack. What's that? Not the crow
1: or judgment night. Maybe. I think Ooh, both maybe judgment those. night. Yeah. Not
0: the crow though. Okay. No. Cause the crow is more, uh, grungy, right? Yeah. True. True. Yeah. So, uh, but definitely like this one, I remember going to the music store and buying the cassette of this, uh, of this soundtrack. And th- and the reason that this fight sticks out to me is cause it always bothered me that it ends with Johnny Cage, not doing his finishing move, but he like picks up a shield and a spear amidst the pile of bones that he's fighting with scorpion. At, and he like cuts off, he slashes him with the saw blade shield and stuff like that and cuts part of his head off and stuff like, it had nothing to do with what his actual moveset was in mortal combat, which always bothered me. <laughs> um, because I was waiting for him to do like the, the deadly uppercut. And instead he just, uh, scorpion ends up exploding in in that fight but um but it's a memorable fight because scorpion is such a memorable character even though uh you know the the johnny cage wasn't that great in that movie but um but yeah so i will i will always hear that music when i even think of that movie yeah this is the song other than the mortal Kombat theme Obviously, you know, with the guy screaming "Mortal Kombat," but like this would be the immediate other song. If you're like song off the soundtrack, I'd be like the the Scorpion. Before I even knew what the title of this song was, um, I would go to that of like, oh yeah, I remember that specifically playing during the fight scene,
1: the Scorpion fight song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the only thing about that was that I had I had already heard this album. I knew this album before I saw the movie, uh, and so it kept bugging me that they kept going back to the start <laughs> like uh, they've chopped up bits you know instrumental bits of this song to play throughout that scene um, and uh, well they keep
0: playing like the space keyboards in this one where it's like <laughs> like, like yeah. where, where they because i almost like this this song to me like aside from the mortal kombat stuff is like doctor who meets thrash right <laughs> where you've got like these sort of uh I, I i kept saying like it's space thrash space thrash like there's vortexes and there's like you know traveling at light speed and all that kind of stuff and uh and that sort of space vortex keyboard piece uh at like three and a half minutes into the song is what you i remember from the mortal Kombat thing
1: that's what the space doctor who thrash i love it <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's like, that's what this song is to me. It's like the space thrash song, uh, it, cosmic thrash. And,
1: and well, and it is such a great song, isn't it? I mean, that that's actually a Terminator two sample that it opens with. Uh, there are two songs on this album that open with samples from Terminator two. And this is one of them. And then that, you know, that thunderous guitar chord with the electronics. And that's the bit that's, you know, kicks off the fight scene, as you say, in mortal Kombat.
0: Um, it's very like, um, like manic, right? Like it's yeah. very sort of, uh, again, like aggressive. The keyboards are aggressive. The, the, just the whole thing is aggressive. If funnily enough, going back to samples in concert, they would regularly play <laughs> Shang Tsung sang fatality while they were playing the song live oh. in concert. <laughs> they would play the fatality. Excellent. I didn't know that. Uh, which I'm sure the crowd absolutely loved.
1: Yeah. 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 I, it's. I mean, it is powerful and aggressive. This song, I say, it's a great one. But part of the part of its success in being powerful, funnily enough, I think, is because it's so simple. Uh, like the chorus that on this track, there is not a single note or chord in that chorus that you are not expecting. If you know anything about music, you know if you are familiar with music, it is an entirely predictable chorus, and yet it works. Because the rest of the song has so little melody, <laughs> you know, like there's almost no melody in the in the non-chorus parts of this song, that it's kind of a relief when you get to a chorus and you're like, oh yeah, okay, this is like this has got some tune, and I know how it goes. It's not going to surprise me or anything, um, right? And I honestly think that's one of the ways it works. If it had been a more unusual chorus, you know, in a sort of less standard, I I don't think it would have. I think it would have been a disservice to the song which is yeah absolutely great song i mean some great lyrics as well um i'm down on my knees praying beyond belief it just what a great line what a fucking great couplet. that's literally
0: the line that i took out of the lyrics here the silence deafens my ears and welds the shackles onto my fears yeah i mean that bit i'm not so (laughs) it's fine you know but
1: uh bell does have some very strange uh phrasing throughout this album there are several lyrics where i'm just like that's that makes n- very little sense really um but it sounds good you know it's atmospheric um but certainly i'm um, down on knees, praying beyond belief is just I, I love that part uh and the piano as well those low piano notes like they're really atmospheric i
0: noted that too yeah like just after three minutes you get those piano notes and then you get space thrash yeah
1: yeah <laughs> Right. Well, the contrast, because the piano notes are really low, and then the synth arpeggiator is really high pitched. So, you know, even there, there's a contrast between the two of them.
0: I also feel like, and and you may completely disagree with this, but one of my like frames of reference for this album is uh, Bell's vocals at times are very uh, typo negative to me.
1: Oh no, the key st- No, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, because Pete Steele used um, uh, a flanger on his vocals quite often as well. Yeah,
0: well, and even just like the the melodic parts of that and the approach to the melody there it just brought me back several times listening to it to Typo Negative, the album that we did. Um, October Rust, right? Is that the one yeah. that we did? yeah like that is and there's a f- a bunch of places here where I'm like oh typo negative typo negative like it, which is just like shorthand for me to be like that's where it, it immediately brought me back to and I think this was the first song where I felt like that that vibe um well and the
1: lyrics as well to an extent I mean you can easily imagine Pete Steele singing I've lost all faith I've lost all trust I'm lost I'm yep. so numb you know <laughs> those <Yep>. are very <laughs> typo style lyrics. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it is a great song. I mean, and the Mortal Kombat movie is silly and cheesy, but a great fun movie as well. Um, I still
0: think it's the best. Uh, well, it's it's definitely for me, like one of the best. I, I like my video game movies to be very campy and very cheesy, and uh-huh. I still think it's one of the best ones uh, out there. Although I am very much a fan of the uh, Resident Evil movies for the same yeah, way.
1: yeah, very cheesy and silly, yeah.
0: I remember Super actually cheesy.
1: when the Mortal Kombat movie came out, uh, he's passed away now some years ago, but there was uh, Barry Norman, who was our sort of, uh, kind of our equivalent of Siskel and Ebert, I suppose. You know, that sort of, like, he was the national film reviewer, as it were. Had the, you know, the primetime BBC film review slot. Um, clearly was not into this movie. I mean, you, you know, it was absolutely... <laughs> You could almost see the the what-the-fuckery on his face as he was reviewing it. But it was a huge release, so he had to review it. And I'll never forget that his closing line was basically, if you're going to make a movie based on a video game, this is exactly how you do it. Yes, Take of that what you will.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Good, bad, or indifferent. And that's the thing, is like Mortal Kombat 2 sucked. That movie was terrible. Um, But this one and i saw it in the theater and we were freaking cheering in yeah, the movie no, theater like it was so much fun to go see in the movie theater i mean at the end of the scorpion scene where johnny cage drops the autographed picture on the oh, yeah. you know <laughs> on the remains of scorpion after it's over like it was it was pretty much everything that you wanted it to be and uh and very rarely are video game movies like what you would hope that they would be right but if That's you're going to adapt yeah. mortal Kombat... Um, which is why I think so many people are so excited for the new Mortal Kombat that's coming out is because it looks like they're not messing around mm. and they're gonna they're gonna go all in on what a Mortal Kombat movie could be. But yeah, it was uh, a ton of fun. Yeah,
1: it really was. Anyway, back to the album. <laughs> Track four is the first single, the biggest hit, probably the song that most people associate with Fear Factory: Replica.
0: I mean, I love the drum kind of cadence to begin with. I love the... This has a very Pantera groove in my mind as well. Um, I just think like... And again, this song... I'm going to have to revise my earlier statement because I think I said earlier that I felt like the guitars can get samey at times. But really, these first four songs are very different from one another. Yeah. Um, And this one is absolutely different from all the three that came before it like it it really um but the way that it opens with the with that sort of uh you know marching drum cadence uh, i think is really great and uh yeah it just it's just a nice change from the song like we have the space thrash before it and then you come into this more like groove oriented song and it's really kind of a nice switch up
1: it really is, and it does groove. I mean, it is every this song used to get played a lot at metal clubs back in the day, and it would fill the dance floor with you know like a hundred metal heads and industrial fans just bouncing up and down when that main riff kicks in. It is so yeah. such a big, heavy, fat groove. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I, it, it likes you can see why this was the the big hit and the first single. Like, what a considering, like, I say this was. Probably the first time most people had heard Fear Factory would have been this single. What a statement. Like, what an opening statement to make. You know, even though it's not the first track on the album, but if this is going to be your first big single that's going to expose you to most people for the first time, holy shit. You know? Yeah. (laughs) Talk about setting up expectations. I mean,
0: I'm glad it's not the first song on the album. Because not that it wouldn't be a good first song on the album, but I don't represent the album. Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent dude. And this is where like, you know, we talk so often about like miscues in the order of the tracks and the placement of the tracks. Whereas like having this come in at number four, after what you've gotten at one, two, three, I think is really well placed.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would be willing to bet there are a lot of people who bought this album and really only played the first four tracks. You know regularly uh it is a
0: very strong first four yeah
1: and that's not to say like i love their whole album that's i'm not saying that i think the rest of the album's weak but in terms of tracks that you can sort of groove along to and that are instantly attention grabbing uh i could well imagine there's a lot of people who just play the first four tracks of this album over and over um I mean, what more is there to say about this song? Like, it's just, it's so good in so many ways. It doesn't even have a middle eight. It has nothing except the verse and the chorus. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter because that is, that's, that's enough.
0: And that's kind of a big feat to be able to, like, break down a song to, to like, almost its most basic elements and make it work. Yeah. Right? And, and, and that song, this song certainly is that. Vocals on this one... um, The the tone to Bell's vocals, and this is another one that people will either agree with or totally disagree with, they might be Giants that's my (laughs) wow (laughs) that's my touchstone on vocal it's just like his tone sometimes dips right into they might be giants uh so i go like it's it's like a cross between uh the clean vocals to me a lot of times are a cross between they might be giants and typo negative uh that's that's where they intersect for me
1: that's amazing i'm sure that's a very large intersection yes Uh, (laughs) so much crossover there (laughs) yeah i feel confident in saying you are Possibly the only person in the world who has ever compared Fear Factory to They Might Be Giants.
0: <laughs> it made me want to go listen to They Might Be Giants. Here come the ABCs,
1: <laughs> um, which my kids grew up on. Oh man, but yeah, like so just such a great song, so simple. Yeah, you know, we've I've talked about this before. Certainly, the value of just locking into a simple fucking groove. You know, a great finding a great riff and just going for it. And that's exactly what this song is. You know, It is not complicated. It's not complex. They don't over-complicate anything. They don't try and get too clever. It is just, this is a fucking great groove. Here we go.
0: Uh, and it's a reminder after the first three songs that they can get less complex. True, yeah. Because you've had that over the course of the first three songs. You've had a lot of complexity, and you've had a lot of uh, multiple... Um, elements layered on top of one another. And this song is just like, hey, in case anybody was wondering, we can just kind of strip it down and kick your ass. We can still
1: rock and, out yeah. Um,
0: yeah, totally. And so I think, it's, uh, I think it's a great placement here. I think it's a great um, complement to the other three songs, but definitely giving you something different.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> then you want simple and different. Track five is New Breed.
0: is up there for my favorite songs on the album. So clearly like simple is something that I, I like, um, this song as well feels, uh, has a little bit of that Pantera groove to me, but also like throw some ministry in there.
1: Yeah.
0: And, um, just, I love here. This is one of my favorite songs as far as like the keyboards
1: from from
0: all, I just like, there's just like this menacing groove to it. And, um, you know, and then it gets like really just crushing and straightforward and, uh, and the chorus is like even more brutal. And so it just like, it's, uh, whereas I feel like the song before it, uh, replica has a a great groove and is very straightforward. Like this one is like, we're back to that, like super aggressive crushing, um, sort of approach. And I think it works really well here too. In a song that's a, 2 minutes and 49 seconds long.
1: Yeah, oh, it's the shortest track on the album. Yeah. Um yeah. And, and absolutely one of the simplest. You're right that the Ministry influence I think is very very clear on this track. Uh both in the verse and the chorus, the entire song. There are only 3 riffs <laughs> in this entire song. Even the synth break is the same as the main guitar riff. It's a different instrument, but it's the same riff. Um but those 3 riffs are different enough from each other that moving from one back to the other you know, helps the song progress. Uh, and yeah, born bred beaten. Holy shit. Yeah. What a great line yep. and what great delivery.
0: Just, yep. and then we have control of destiny. We have control of what's to be. We have control of destiny. We have control of what's to be like, again, the lyrics are not like super complex here, but they're powerful. Yeah, Exactly uh it's but
1: born bread beaten i i could sing along to that all day long it just, it's so <laughs> yeah. good so so good uh and again there's not there's not a lot else to say because the song is so simple but it is so powerful uh it's a crusher yeah it really is but going back to what i said on the last song i can i can imagine that this song might have turned some people off and that's why like it is the first four songs i mean it's different you know, nothing on the album has sounded like it before, but the first four songs are, how can I put it, more friendly to metal fans. And I don't think that's necessarily deliberate. They just are, you know. Uh, whereas this is so heavy and has such huge industrial influences, including that crazy keyboard, um, that I can imagine, you know, the sort of less industrial leaning metal fans get into this track and go, eh, too much. Eh, off it comes.
0: <laughs> this is their exit
1: ramp? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but I love it. I mean, I think it's... And also, what a statement. You know, we are the new breed. We are the future. Yep. It doesn't get any simpler than that, does it?
0: <laughs> right, and, and easy to make the connection with the overall theme that they are attributing to this album, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, but not just that, but also musically as well. Uh, this was, yeah, true. This is only... This is less than a year, I think this was released. Less than a year after, and I know this didn't probably make the news in the US. I think I might have mentioned it before, but on the the UK, Bruce Dickinson used to have a Friday Night Rock show on the radio, uh, on like, you know, our biggest radio station in the country. Um, And he got into a spat with Mark Heal of Cubanate uh because mark heel you know very very outspoken man basically declaring to the music press because they they were huge at this time cubanate uh they just had massive hit with Oxyacetylene off their second album and he basically declared to the music press that they were the future and that your traditional heavy metal bands were all dinosaurs who should just go away and die uh and bruce dickinson took exception to this <laughs> as you can as imagine. you might imagine yeah uh and they got into quite a ruckus i think he was even on the show i see if i recall correctly uh and they had a right old ding dong and uh and it was an argument going on in metal at the time like did was there a place for drum machines and samplers and sampling keyboards and processed vocals and people who'd basically taken it even further than ministry like ministry was one thing but you know they at least were still made up of the components of a traditional heavy metal band uh you know they had a drummer there two drummers uh they had people playing guitars live Um, you know, they weren't incorporating breakbeats into their songs. Uh, they weren't using DJs and then obviously people come along and took it further and started using DJs and started incorporating breakbeats and started just performing live with drum machines, a metal band with no drummer, almost unheard of. Um, it was a real controversy at the time. And I mean, you could argue it's still a controversy now, but I don't know. And maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe you're right, and that this is more about the sort of the thematic societal stuff going on. But I did also take this song, especially because it has such industrial leanings, to be a bit of a musical statement as well. and saying, actually, no, we are. This is the future. You know, you, you may not like it, but this is going to be a part of what metal is in the future.
0: And they were right. I mean, I love that because that's context that like I didn't have for that. You know where that song could could kind of come from so i think that's awesome
1: yeah i mean like I say maybe i'm reading too much into it god knows it wouldn't be the first time but
0: <laughs> that's what
1: we're here for that's um, right and speaking of industrial influence then track six dog day sunrise
0: Yeah, which is a cover of Head of David. Yeah, um, which I didn't know initially the first time that I listened through it. Um, but in one of the articles, that was a song. That was a band that I think uh, Bell and Dino bonded over when they were first kind of getting oh, together. say
1: that right? I could believe um, that, and yeah. kind of
0: trading influences of like, oh, have you heard of this band? Have you heard of this band? And Head of David was a band that I think that dino may have introduced uh burton bell to oh, okay um but it, the, i think that the crazy thing about this is that i don't feel like this song is such a departure from everything else on the album that it couldn't have been a song yeah of their own i agree
1: completely uh, i actually i like you even though i have the album i didn't it didn't twig for me <laughs> for some time that this was a cover, um, uh, because yeah, it just sounds like. I mean, because I've heard people say that this doesn't fit on this album because it's you know it's a cover. It doesn't sound like Fear Factory, but I just think that that's not true. Um, I mean, yeah, you and I both didn't realise it was a cover at first, but also it's it's a break from the ultra heavy,
0: hundred percent, you know, and plenty it's...
1: of other bands do that. It's just that a lot of bands who do that resort to ballads, <laughs> you know, and this clearly totally. is not like,
0: And as someone who loves a genre of rock slash metal, that always includes a ballad on uh, an album. Like, I guess I, I'm just expecting on any album that at some point there's like a, a stretching or a departure or a, you know, a little bit more experimental track on the album or something like that. And so that never really catches me like super off guard because I grew up on hair metal. Like there's always a ballad on, there's usually two ballads. There's a ballad on each side (laughs) on most, you know what I mean? And so it's like, but yeah, on this one, I feel like especially Bell's vocal stylings, even on the most aggressive songs on the album so far have prepared you for what this song delivers. That's absolutely true. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't like completely throw me of like, Oh, here's a song where he actually gets to sing a little bit more. Uh, and do the clean vocal thing like that makes perfect sense to me he clearly likes to mix that stuff in or it wouldn't be present on their most aggressive song so the fact that he has a song where, where it can breathe a little bit more and he can stretch out a little bit more didn't surprise me at all and this song has a it almost made me feel like oh this band's more Dynamic than I thought they were. Like they more multifaceted. Yeah, yeah. Like there's more of a rock sensibility to it. Like it, it's also more um has like a 1990s rock feel to it as well. And so like it, 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 it definitely, I thought was also perfectly placed. Like after those first five yeah. songs, especially after a song that was uh two minutes and forty nine seconds long, to have this song be at number six felt like okay. That's a good palate cleanser at song number six.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and we've just been pummeled over the head basically for yeah. for, for five tracks nonstop. You know, totally, <laughs> and we're about to get pummeled over the head again for 100%. several more tracks. You know, so yeah, it absolutely fits as as a good break. It's funny that you said like about how it sounds like a rock track because the it, it, the this version is more sort of trad metal even though it's not very trad metal, but it it, it adds, you know, more metal touches to it uh, than the original. The re- I mentioned the industrial influence. So Head of David was a band uh, incorporating Justin Broderick, who is most, most people know him from Godflesh, uh, who, you know, one of the original and most influential industrial bands in music history. Uh, and Head of David was, I think, there were several more people in involved in the band than in Godflesh because Godflesh is just two, him and another guy. Um, I think there were more people involved ahead of David, and it was a bit more, a bit less sort of pummeling industrial. But still, uh, you know that legacy is there. And if you go and listen to the original, it is much more mechanical, funnily enough, than this song. I feel like Fear Factory actually added a bit of humanity and groove. Uh, into this song, which, you know, is not at all (laughs) what you'd expect from them. But yeah, it's, I mean, it even, even thematically in terms of lyrics, it fits because again, Broderick is from Birmingham, my hometown, Uh, you know, Black Sabbath's hometown, uh, Judas Priest's hometown. You'll have heard a lot about Birmingham. It's a very gray or was at the time anyway, a very gray industrial city full of working class industrial labor. Uh, and I've always taken these lyrics to be about that. You know, it's about that sort of hopeless drudgery of.
0: Yeah, that 100%. Life. Dude.
1: And that fits thematically with the rest of this album.
0: Uh, absolutely. Dog Day Sunrise, every day of my life. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love it. Uh, I think it fits. And I think people who think it doesn't fit on the album are mad. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well i'm gonna second that because i also think it fits
1: the end uh so moving on to track seven body hammer
0: Mean you get punched right back in the face again. So if you were feeling like, oh man, this song doesn't really fit, like right back in the groove with song number seven, um, killer riff. The the sort of hammer banging in the background is great. This is this song is very thrashy um, and very crunchy. Uh, in fact, this is one of the only songs that I feel like I could do without the the sort of clean melodic style singing like it like i feel like this the core killer riff to this song is so good Mm -hmm. that i almost wish it was a similar approach to um you know replica or new breed where we didn't i i I don't want to say overcomplicate it but i feel like this song as a whole has great elements and the the sort of melodic stuff actually takes me out of it a little bit
1: oh interesting yeah uh, the opening riff on this is it's so good and it's so clean. Like, uh people talk about James Hetfield's right hand is a miracle. And, you know, that's true. <laughs> no, seriously, I like a lot of guitarists I have seen guitarists say this, people say like, you know, if you could if you could play like any one, uh, you know, guitarist, who would it be? And a lot of them say, like, I just want James Hetfield's right hand because it's so good and so precise oh, um,
0: i would put him in the top five uh, rhythm guitarists of all time right for sure but dino is
1: not far behind in my opinion like this my god playing this riff you know to the precision level that he does is not easy uh and i think there's a lot of you know good guitarists who would struggle to to yep. replicate that um and also that that extra bar of chugs that just goes up a semitone in the intro with mm-hmm. the, with the metal sounds clanging underneath it oh i love that that's a, that's just a, one of those nice little touches that gets me um the lyrics yeah they're all right you know, the fun. I kind of
0: love them. I mean, they're cheesy, they but cheesy, like, yeah. I am a tool of severe impact. Terrible Hammer English, down, cause and effect. <laughs>
1: this this uh, is what I meant about Bell's terrible. I am a tool of severe impact. Ooh, I mean, I know what it means, but <laughs> it's just like they're great lyrics, but terrible English, man. It sounds like a euro. Well, metal I don't
0: want to. There's a connection I'm going to make in a couple of songs that really. uh actually makes me like this album even more, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do, I do go in for those lyrics for sure.
1: Yeah. The, the one criticism I have, uh, of this song is that the synths overwhelm the guitar on the chorus, hmm. which I think is a yeah, shame. The chorus is my
0: problem with the song. for yeah. Sure.
1: It, it's not the strongest chorus. Uh, and yeah, you, 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 the synths are actually higher in the mix than the guitars. It feels like, and that uh, to me, that takes away some of the impact. So I think that's a shame. Um, I do like the fact you actually get to hear the bass for a minute in the track, uh, yep. in the middle eight. I don't know if that's Christian Old Walbers because there's a lot of argument about whether how much he actually played on this album.
0: And uh, stuff that Dino may have like redone. Right, yeah. Or, yeah, so yeah. whether
1: it's him or whether it's Dino, I don't know. But I like the fact that you just get to hear the bass because this is not one of those albums where the bass is super prominent <laughs> elsewhere. Um, and it is always just playing the same as the guitars as well so um but yeah it's uh, the ending as well you know everything sort of like starts speeding up and punctuating for emphasis uh yeah it's it's a good track it's not my favorite on the album
0: but it's it's got its place um i think it would be one of my favorites on the album if it wasn't for the fact that the chorus takes a little bit away from it for me right but i still really like uh i really like the song and i think it's it's a it's a fine song coming off of Dog Day Sunrise too.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh you probably don't want to go from that straight into the equivalent of New Breed again. <laughs> Thinking about right. it. Yeah. That might be too much. Uh track 8 then is Flashpoint.
0: Yeah, this is a song where you get to hear the bass a little bit more as well. Um there's that also that also effect, uh so I like kind of the galloping drums in this one. Uh there's the effect where the guitars are kind of bouncing from ear to ear or have that kind of circular um yeah. you know uh feel to them. Um I felt a lot of typo negative vibes in this song as well with the melodic vocals. Um but then it like two minutes and 15 seconds it gets super thrashy and so this song kind of goes on a bit of a journey i think
1: yeah it is i mean uh you're right the bass is you know more prominent which is nice for once um it's a very it's another simple track it's the second shortest track on the album um it's kind of uh, it's a little forgettable for me um it's probably i think the weakest track on the album and that's not to say it is overall weak again it's you know like i say i, I do love the whole album but i would put this as as the weakest track for me uh the uh, the chorus uh, if you can call it a chorus <laughs> you know, it's damned in flames uh is the only part of the song that ever kind of sticks in my head you know it, that's the part that sort of that i remember and everything else about this song just kind of slides out of my ears, as it were.
0: Um, I feel like it's kind of like a jack-of-all-trades master of none song, where if mm. you look at the other short song on the album, you know, New Breed at 2 minutes and 49 seconds, it's it knows what it is, and it makes good use of its less than 3 minute runtime. And here, it's kind of like there's different elements but none of them, like, stand out strongly enough that they all kind of water each other down.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true, and also the the clean uh, singing section isn't very strong. Uh, yeah, you know it's yeah, uh, it doesn't really work for me. I do, however, like the the lyric lies sinking like gasoline saturates my body. One last spark of dishonesty, and that will be the death of me. That's that's good. That's yeah, that's uh, good stuff. You know, that was good lyrics. Uh, but let's move on then. Track nine, H.K. Hunter Killer.
0: very atmospheric intro you've got kind of the spoken introduction um talking about violence talking about um crime talking about like the guns and the the lack of gun control and and all of that kind of stuff and then you get a very machine gun like riff mm. um that sort of kicks in in the in the 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 Keyboards behind it that, you know, are really kind of menacing. And this is another song that to me gets very thrashy. Um, And then when you couple that with the lyrics, like, the machine is now alive to wreak havoc in your lives. There's no use to hold me back. I am ready to attack. This was the song that I wrote. This reminds me of a Death Clock song. (laughs) Is that because of the I am a criminal part? Yeah, just, yeah. yes, definitely, and that takes me back to, what was it, two songs of Body Hammer, where I was like, oh, I'm gonna make a connection, and that is the connection, is that some of these lyrics are Nathan Explosion lyrics, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of Brendan Small's influences, um, certainly with mm. uh, Gene Hoglan also having, you know, performed in Fear Factory uh, and being a big part of the Death Clock stuff, like I there's just some of those lyrics are very Nathan explosion to me which actually makes me like them more. <laughs> I think it it's not just the
1: lyrics it's the execution of those lyrics. Yeah, it's the delivery yeah. for sure. Yeah. And the the almost bouncy rhythm to the i am a criminal i 100 yeah, it's <laughs> yep. almost like musical theater or something it's like
0: which is exactly <laughs> what you we got on the death clock album right yeah
1: yeah uh yeah it's it's not my favorite part of this song by any means um it's it's funny like talking about the samples from terminator 2 that are on this album the next one is on the the next track not this one but i it, this almost lyrically feels like it's a song like written from sarah connor's point of view uh-huh. Uh you know as a sort of post-apocalyptic vigilante i've become what they detest a delinquent survivalist uh, which is that whole section is probably one of the strongest parts of the song i think um yeah it's such a weird song with so many different parts and they don't quite fit together for me like again you know this and the track before basically are sort of Again, I like them. I'll listen to them. I won't skip them, but they are the weakest part of the album, I think. Um, And especially on this one, it's a shame because there is also the gun control message, which God knows, you know, I'm all in favor of. Um, The one thing that kind of rescues it is the use of electronics. And especially at the end, the war against the machines bit.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. For sure.
1: That is almost Um, worth the price of admission alone.
0: I think I like this song more than you do, and maybe it is the death clock thing which gives me the warm and fuzzies for this song. But I, I do, uh, I do like this song, and I, um, I definitely would not, not a skip song for me. I, I highlighted it as one of my more enjoyable tracks on the album. Oh,
1: cool. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we're about to get to one of my very favorite tracks of the album. So let's go on then to track ten, Piss Christ.
0: Your savior now oh so good, <laughs> so good. <laughs> that's the chef's kiss right it
1: really is yeah it, like uh, this is again this is the one that opens with another terminator 2 sample uh you know yeah. those guys really did love that movie um yeah obviously it's named for Andres serrano's work which i assume everybody's familiar with i assume everybody knows the whole controversy about the work piss christ uh you know not long before this and Serrano, of course, had done, I think at this point he'd done the cover for Load, but maybe not for Reload. But, you know, he was, obviously, he was well-known.
0: Um, when did Load come out?
1: 94, wasn't it?
0: I think you're right. I'd have to look it up. But yeah, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Pretty
1: sure Load was 94, and then Reload was 95 or 96. Um, so, yeah, I mean, an obvious sort of, you know, title reference, even though the song doesn't really have anything to do with it. Um but I love this song. It's so good. Uh, like, it's sort of... It, not, as I say, the previous two songs, they're not much of a dip, but they are a little bit of a dip for me. And this song just brings it right back up to absolute peak. It's got a great riff. You've got some great percussion bells. Vocal work is really good on this. Yeah, uh,
0: strong ministry vibes on this one for me, for sure.
1: Yeah, the, the So We Lie section is still... still really fucking heavy it still hits hard uh and like the first three and a half minutes are are a great track by themselves but then (laughs) but then you get to three minutes 40 and he start you know the face down arms out section and that for me just absolutely pushes this song over the top and yeah the descending guitar line while he's singing where is your savior savior now Just every time, every time, hairs on the back of my neck. I love it. It's so good.
0: Yeah. And this is, uh, I don't think I talked about this a lot on the other song. I did talk about it on one song, how I thought like the melodic vocals uh, took away from the song. In this one, this song doesn't lose any uh, punch because of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, they they work super well with the song.
1: Yeah. No, I think they're absolutely.
0: And it almost gives it more of an epic feel. Like, this song feels a little bit more epic to me. Oh, for like, sure. Like, bigger than some of the other songs on this album.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a combination of the the way it's arranged and ending with that. Because that that coda is just a complete shift. It's not like it's yep. a key change, but the same riff or anything. It is a complete, it's a bit like, you know, how typos sometimes just have that coda where it's a completely different song now for the last 90 seconds. And that's kind of what this is as well uh and i am a bit of a sucker for that if it's done well but i think that also it's done well here for sure i think that also helps make it feel epic it helps give it that epic feel and also yeah just the performance of it the execution the keyboard work uh yeah you know the dynamics again you listen to the the second run through of the even in the coder the second run through of the lines under where is your savior now become busier and looser more open strings and more percussion and again it's just dynamics the helping it feel like it's all building up to that final climax and then of course you get that that last line of him singing where's your saver now with distortion this time and loads of reverb and echo and i just i love it like that's, that's if that was the last track on the album i would not be disappointed
0: Well, I'm going to go ahead and say it should have been the last track on the album, uh, and it would have made for a great final track, I think.
1: Interesting. Okay, well then let's move on to that last album. So that is track 11, A Therapy for Pain.
0: nine minutes and 43 seconds yep. of which the last three are the apocalypse, the afterlife. I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but this, this song for me was a bridge too far. Whereas I felt like, uh, like I said, dog day sunrise fits to me within the scope of this album and, and vocals and stuff like that. And I just feel like after such a strong, uh, you know, song before it. This one just didn't. I don't know what it couldn't go anywhere else. I mean, it's ten minutes long. I it, you couldn't put this song anywhere else on this album, but I almost felt like you didn't need it. Like you, you cut this song out, and you've got a forty-six minute top to bottom banger. So I just uh, so I think my negative reaction to this song is more just because I felt like, "Wow, compared to the rest of the album, this song did not do it for me." Mm. so I was kind of like, "Huh?" Um, and when that's the last song, that's not, that's not a good thing for me. See, I mean I know it divides people.
1: You know You're not the first person to say that about this song by any means. Uh, it, it does really divide people, but to me, it feels like an epilogue. Mm -hmm. Like, Piss Christ is the climax, no question, and it's almost like that's the final, that's the proper final track, and then this is the end credits. This is, like, even Herrera's drumming feels orchestral, almost, in this Mm -hmm. song, like timpani, you know, and the lyrics are all about that sense of giving up. You know, but being denied even giving up life and having to carry on struggling. You've got that wind effect, you've got Bell's vocals, the piano at one point. Uh, And then, yeah, and then the end, you know, a band. So here's a band that has just made one of the heaviest records of its time. Like, I don't think anybody would dispute that. In 1995, this was one of the heaviest records that had ever been released on a major label, no question. And then not only. Do they end with an atmospheric dirge. But then at six minutes, they just go into synth ambient. They have three minutes.
0: I mean, (laughs) let me be clear. It is very crystal clear to me why this song would hit for you. Right. Like just knowing, (laughs) just knowing you, I'm like, of course, like this this is completely in your wheelhouse. I mean, 10 minutes long, check, you know, uh, three minutes of ambience check. Like, like I feel like this, this checks all the boxes for you and, and does the exact opposite for me. Right. So it doesn't surprise me that we're on different sides about this song. Um, but
1: the other box that it checks for me is who else would do this? Who else in 1995, apart, maybe actually from Godflesh? really come to think of it. Who else would dare to do this? Like, who's daring to do this now? Nobody. And I just really appreciate that. I really appreciate a band that goes, no, fuck it. It works. Like, this is our coda, this is our epilogue, and we don't care. It, kind of in the same way that Pantera did that cover of Planet Caravan. And there was so much outcry about that. And they were like, fuck you. This is a classic song.
0: <laughs> Make no mistake, I am absolutely in favor of bands like doing whatever the hell they want it is it is your music it is your vision it is your like i I don't like that that idea of like bands having to compromise whatever whatever their vision is for something so i would certainly never begrudge them that um
1: but at the same time if it doesn't
0: work for you then
1: yeah you know that's all that's just as much your right as, as it is theirs to do what they like
0: but i do i do like the idea of thinking of it as like the end credits yeah I mean it's certainly long enough to be the end credits for a modern <laughs> uh movie. <That's> and true. <laughs> um but that actually helps me put it in its proper place I think. So, yeah, and 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 I'll say this. It doesn't do enough to ruin even though I, this song doesn't do anything for me like it certainly doesn't do enough to ruin what the rest of the album was for me for right. sure. Yeah. It just uh I just feel like for me personally like ending on song 10 would have been like I would have flipped that bad boy right over and started again.
1: Well, and uh, obviously this is something that we've talked about a lot with albums, but I, I kind of like that this track doesn't do that because it makes it feel more like... Uh, I mean, even though, as i said, I don't think this is you know a narrative concept album, but it makes it feel more like this is a thing, this is a work of art that you have sure. just experienced as a whole... And that's the end of it, rather yep. than, as you say, you know, and we all have favorite albums, yeah, where the last track is so great that you just want to go back to the start and listen to it again. And I don't want to do that with this album, not because I didn't like it, but because this feels like, as I say, like an epilogue, like the ending. And it's instead one of those where I want to sit and just sort of think about it for a while and, you know, uh, reminisce about the album that I've just listened to.
0: But I feel like the, I, I totally get that. I just feel like they give you ten minutes to do that. Like I don't need to. Uh, I don't. I don't need to then listen to then think about it. After, like this whole song, all I'm doing is thinking about the rest of the album. So like when this song's over, I'm ready for. It's like the return of the king ending of this particular album. Like we're we get plenty of time to uh, drift off into the ether by the time the song's over. So, uh, but I I. I do like that idea of like it being the end credits of this thing. And, and if there is, if this is a concept album, then this does make more sense as the final chapter of a concept album, that's for true. sure. Yeah, that is true. Uh,
1: all right, and that's the end of the album. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that overall, obviously, I love this album, uh, but I was genuinely surprised pleasantly surprised and impressed uh how much i still love this album because like i say it had been a while since i'd listened to it you know more than occasionally hearing replica by itself or whatever and i did fear haha that that it wouldn't hold up and that i wouldn't still love it as much as i did in 1995 but it turns out actually i do
0: yeah this is a good one man uh definitely the most i've ever spent with this album for sure uh and it was, it was a fun one to, to go and visit. So I get why it holds such a high place within sort of the, the landscape of metal, especially for what it was doing at the time and what, what it was doing that was different from everyone else.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of ties into what I was saying. Yeah. I was, I, I think that was my concern was that like, yes, yes. There was no question that at the time this was bold and fresh and new and very heavy and all that sort of stuff, but I did worry like you know has metal in the meantime kind of rendered it a bit f- toothless um and actually no, I don't think it has it is still really fucking heavy
0: <laughs> it is super heavy and, and absolutely yeah
1: ah, <laughs> uh, all right, well, that is the end of the episode um the so we don't have homework this episode because the next episode is going to be a backstage pass yep with one of our patrons and we are figuring that out at the moment uh so i'm not going to give anything away uh they actually haven't chosen an album <laughs> as we're recording this but they will soon and uh yeah that'll be fun to do uh and then after that we'll do another couple of you know regular episodes and then we'll do our encore that's going to be the last track of this volume i think um we'll do our encore for this one so start getting your thinking caps on about what band you might like us to revisit in the encore episode um but in the meantime remember that you can join the facebook group on facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out and of course you can support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out with just a dollar per episode that's all we ask one dollar per episode um and we know times are hard right now uh so we really appreciate especially everybody who is who continues to support us because you really do help us do things like you know buy new equipment and pay for the hosting and and
0: all that sort of stuff um so yeah it's it's very much appreciated yeah and it and it we've mentioned this a lot but it bears mentioning again like the the community around the show is amazing yeah and in a year that has been really shitty for a lot of people this group and the 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 listeners of the show the people on the Facebook group but even you, you know elsewhere and just the the love and support that we get from people who enjoy the show has been super helpful this past year and you know one of the bright spots definitely for me uh over this past year is just the the awesome community we have around the show so thank you for listening thank you for joining the conversation Thanks for the support on Patreon. Like y- you all make, it would be awesome just to to get together with a buddy and talk about music once a month or so. But the what this community does to enhance that is just, uh, it blows my mind.
1: Absolutely. And, and people have said, I mean, we have heard from listeners who've said that, you know, this podcast has also helped them to get through, uh, you know, hard times in 2020 and stuff. Uh, and obviously that's incredibly humbling, but it is very much also reciprocal. Yeah. Having that community oh, for there sure. and knowing that there are people enjoying the show and you know, that they're sort of out there just trying to get on with life <laughs> during these, as we say, shitty times. Um, yeah. Has been a real salve for us as well. So thank you everyone. All right. So that's it. Like I say, there's no homework. Uh, we'll be back Uh, hopefully you know soon and hopefully sooner than we were with this episode with uh, a backstage pass Uh, and we'll see you then until then keep thrashing
0: take care